Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to episode two of the PocketGamer.biz podcast, your source for the latest, the greatest, and the free-to-playest information and insight into the global mobile games market. It's a big week for us here. Uh, we're anticipating the next huge global event for uh, Steel Media, our Lords and Masters. Pocket Gamer Connect's digital number seven is looming. It takes place next week. That's on July the 12th to the 16th. And if you haven't been before, that means 1,500 games industry professionals, over 250 speakers from some 75 countries, and a whole programme of great live video content full of insight and practical advice across 20 themed conference tracks. Uh, You can watch the expert tracks live or catch up with recorded videos within your own time. If, however, you are online while our speakers are speaking, you can join in, participate and interact with them live through direct questions, chat, Q&A, Discord, pretty much all of the modern technologies. And uh, there's still time to get tickets. So visit pgconnects.com and you can find out who's speaking, what the conference tracks are and snap up a last minute bargain. Come along and join us. As always, we want to hear from you. This podcast is not just about us, although we do love having our ego strokes. It's about you as well. So if you want to suggest a speaker, ask a question, or generally give us any kind of feedback, you can email us, podcast at pocketgamer.biz, or follow us, tweet us, like us, love us on our at pgbiz Twitter handle. So, having said all that, in one breath no less... A couple of quick introductions. I'm Brian Baglow. I'm the uh, managing editor, industry legend, style icon, and reformed games developer and PR bloke. Joining me this week, we have John Jordan. And John is the contributing editor of PG.biz, the editor at large of Blockchain Gamer. And I believe he's now an NFT in his own right. Is that correct, John? <laughs> very good. Very, very on the ball, Brian. I'm not going to explain what NFTs are. <laughs> I, I, I do actually listen. Oh, we'll save that for Blockchain Gamer podcast. So before we jump in, we have a fantastic guest star joining us this week. We have the amazing Ella Romanos from Fundamentally Games. Um, but before we do a quick introduction, uh, a couple of quick key themes from this week's news. First of all, our top 50 mobile games creators uh, has opened for entries and nominations, which is our celebration and showcase of the world's greatest game creators. John, very much your baby. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, originally, yes, well, yes, it was, was my baby. And then it grew up and I handed it handed it away to someone else and then, then I've been handed it back again. <laughs> so it's something that sort of uh, has grown with the kind of industry, I think. It was kind of funny now when I look back at the first one um, that I did. The mobile game space was was fairly light then. So I have to say it was quite hard to, to get 50 uh, companies together, whereas now we spend a lot of time <laughs> trying to work out how on earth we can fit 51 into 50. Um, but, uh, yeah. Exactly, exactly so. And it, But it's not it's not just down to the numbers. There's a, There's a lot that goes into this so just because you're not necessarily a, a, a massive company earning billions of dollars um there is sp- still space for you you know because it's down to what you're doing the buzz that you're creating the games that you're releasing obviously so we're looking for nominations we're looking for people to help us find the 50 greatest game creators in the world so keep your eyes on the pocketgamer.biz website and our social channels and uh, yeah we're looking for your help Secondly, it's one of the one of the stories that uh, you were writing about earlier this week, John. The games industry, in terms of deals, mergers, acquisitions, bigger than ever, at mm. sixty billion dollars. 
so far in 2021, I believe. Yes, well, it's one of these sort of staggering things that I think for the last really, probably for the last kind of two years, kind of every story we've written about the kind of games industry in general or mobile in particular has always been, it's, it's you know, it's growing much bigger, uh, but the growth is sort of accelerating. And I guess we've had this slightly unexpected kind of situation with, with, with COVID and lockdowns last year where just everyone was was doing a lot more sort of inside online things than, than they probably would have would have liked to be doing. Um, but what's been interesting is that has that behaviour has sort of continued into into twenty twenty one when some places still in lockdown, obviously, but but generally that people can come outside now and be a bit less uh, attached to their to their screens. But it seems like the sort of behaviour that we've seen people kind of either sort of playing games directly or just interacting socially online or obviously kind of uh, between the two it's sort of engaged now in, in the way we sort of live uh, and that's continuing to be reflected so so games are continuing to generally or a lot of games are, are sort of have never made more money than they've made now because people are just playing them more and then that again is being reflected in this kind of m a uh, mergers and acquisitions activity um, which is basically companies raising money to buy other companies and then obviously get bigger through through that kind of um activity similarly we're seeing lots of activity in companies going on stock exchanges what we call ipos to quote a um, probably forgotten English politician now, but it, but it's kind of one of these situations where, where the game space has never had, had it so good. Really, it's an enormous industry. Um, normally, when industries get enormous, the sort of growth sort of tails off as, as people can't play any more games. But it seems at the moment we are we are we are not close to people deciding that they can't play any more games. <laughs> so, indeed, indeed, and and it's and it's not just consolidation. It's not just big companies buying smaller companies or huge companies buying big companies. Um, but there's a lot of funding going in at the other end of the market as well. There are a lot of companies raising money. There, you know. They're they're getting equity funding and they you know they're preparing for greater growth. Yeah. So it, it looks like a really healthy market. Yeah. So it's kind of what we're seeing. Yeah. So the bigger companies are sort of acquiring and, and building up, but then things tend to go in cycles. So obviously, when someone's company's been bought, they they tend to stay with it. Normally, they they legally have to stay with it for a number of years. They kind of what they call golden handshakes and stuff. But then these kind of people who've sold their companies a few years later, they sort of move on and, and you know maybe do, relax, spend some time on the beach, and then they get a bit bored, and then they go, well, let's start up another company. We're sort of starting to see that now that new companies are starting up and getting funding, and then I guess we'll see that in the next couple of years. That people who have been successful and then taken some time off to think about what they want to do next then sort of come back in the space and we'll see sort of the next wave of you know games obviously be different sorts of things i guess people will be looking at but uh but yeah it's just very uh, very exciting yeah and and the final thing is it's when you look at this this because this figure um there's 60 mil, 60 billion a bigger pardon is games industry wide but when you look at the this split and um, the split between pc and console and mobile is getting closer and closer. You know, mobile is an increasingly large part of this scene. Dare I say, it could almost even be considered a part of the real games market. <laughs> well, I mean, this is still one of these funny things that the mobile game sector is bigger than PC and console put together um, at the moment. And, and you know, mobile has been the biggest single sector, um, you know, for about four or five years now. So to some degree, I don't think it'll ever be sort of treated as a as sort of proper gaming by people of a certain age who grew up playing on consoles. And those kind of people, that's how they consume their they're gaming and that's how they sort of see real gaming as being um but again i think it can be a quite kind of western centric sort of experience where lots of people in the world you know clearly can't afford to have a a pc or or a games console they just don't have that amount of money but they all have phones so so that's really you know when we see the sort of the global growth of mobile gaming that's that's um although obviously people in in western europe and north america spend a lot of money playing mobile games we really see you know mobile games as as the only way to play games is happening in particularly asia uh, where you have billions of people and i guess in the next 10 years that will move to Africa very exciting (laughs) something profoundly to be hoped folks you know given that we are a mobile game site so uh, more the mobiles Anyway, moving swiftly on, it's uh, the, the final thing this week is is and bizarrely going back to the world of real games meets mobile gaming meets the outdoors. Pokemon 
Um, Pokemon Go has just had its largest year ever. So keeps growing. Um, obviously, the, the pandemic had some kind of impact. But uh, yeah, it just seems that we do have to catch them all. It's the law. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's kind of funny because Pokemon Go has been massively successful for a number of years, as I say, five years now. But the thinking behind Niatic, the company who, who make it, is, is or certainly their CEO, is he's always been very focused on getting people out and about and moving. Um, yeah, he's a very sort of active sort of, sort of guy. And the games he worked on when he used to work at Google were location-based games, or they were, he had a, I can't remember what it's called now, but he had an app where you could walk around wherever you were and it would tell you kind of interesting historical facts, you know, um, things like that. So he's always been very focused on getting people out there. And obviously Pokemon Go, you know, we've seen kind of stories about how people, you know, got themselves fitter, had a fitter lifestyle because they were going out and collecting these Pokemons. Um, so when, when COVID lockdowns came in, that was quite a big issue for, <laughs> for Pokemon um, and what they wanted to do because obviously people couldn't walk around and collect and play the game. So they had to sort of re re-engineer a lot of their stuff so you could play it in your house. Interestingly, what happened was um, they were very successful at that, and actually people played a lot more in their houses. Um, I guess it's kind of simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they're going, they are going through an interesting phase now where some of the things that they added due to lockdowns they're keeping because people love them so much. Some of them they're taking away. Probably people still love them, but they're taking away and forcing you to go out. <laughs> they're dealing with an interesting tension now. Um, they've been massively successful, you know, the best year ever, as you say. It'd be interesting to see whether whether their kind of success continues um, next year or whether people sort of slightly kick against the fact that they've been told to wander around and find the new Pokemons. Well, I, I, you know, if they wanted to come and actually talk, you know, I have a solution. It's the perfect solution. It's a premium downloadable content pack called Pokemon Stay. You stay in your house, you get Pokemon, they're delivered to your door on silver salvers. I think everyone would be happy with that. Interesting proposal, Brian. <laughs> I'll leave <laughs> well, it at that. Well, you know, <laughs> you can't have all the industry insight to yourself, John. <laughs> Niantic, if that's of interest, you know where I am. It's time to introduce uh, this week's guest. And uh, whereas in the past I have asked the guests to introduce themselves, uh, I cut and pasted a lot of stuff from LinkedIn today, so it's all getting read out. So we're thrilled, delighted and quite cock a to welcome Ella Romanos, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Fundamentally Games. Now, since 2008, Ella has helped build and manage game development teams and has a deep understanding of the resources, processes and commercial considerations of game creation with over 50 game releases under her belt. And she's sat on boards and done a whole ton of stuff. I would far rather you introduce yourself, Ella, if that's okay. So, (laughs) hello, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Not at all. It's an absolute pleasure. First of all, um, following on from my glowing introduction, can you, you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've had really quite a an interesting journey through the games industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I started, I graduated uh, from university in 2008. Um, and uh, for my sins, we set up a, a work for hire game studio, which I think, uh, you know, knowing nothing is actually makes things less scary uh, in hindsight. Um, but, you know, we set that up. We... Uh, we did pretty well. We um, we grew that studio for about seven years. Um, you know, I was originally a programmer, and when we started up, that's what I did. But very quickly, we realised that somebody needed to do the business stuff, uh, whatever that meant, and somehow that ended up being me. Uh, uh, and uh, over the seven years, I actually went from kind of doing it as as something that I had to do to actually doing it something that I love. After that, uh, I spent about six years consulting, working with game developers, brands, investment funds, mainly on things like business strategy and operations, production, 
uh, fundraising before starting Fundamentally Games. We started that in 2019, so we're, we're fairly new, uh, but we're kind of building on all the experience that myself and my business partner have had through our careers. And uh, Fundamentally is doing something a, a little bit different. You describe yourselves as a, as a live ops publisher. So, you know, for anyone out there who's not yet familiar with live ops, uh, first of all, you're going to love this interview because it's all about that. But second of all, can you give us a quick rundown? What the heck do we mean by live ops? Sure. So, I mean, as you said, kind of fundamentally games, we we focus on live ops, specifically what we call living games. So mm-hmm. uh, by which we mean any game that focuses on player engagement and retention long term. And therefore, intrinsically, because of that, has an ongoing revenue stream. Now, we often, when we talk about these things, your mind goes immediately to mobile free-to-play games. Um, that is obviously a massive part of it, but it is not the only part of it. Uh, you know, PC, multiplayer, battle pass experiences. You know, there's a huge amount of um, types of games that need, that are living and that need ongoing engagement and retention. That's really what we do. Live Ops is essentially the act of managing and running the living game. So that that covers a lot of ground. Um, managing a living game is is not something that I think many developers, creators who are used to sort of the standalone product approach are necessarily going to be familiar with. So what, what does LiveOps cover? I mean, obviously, you've got data analytics, you've got player management, user accounts, monetization. Well, so, I mean... Uh... Once we get into running the game in live, the live bots themselves, we, we break down into a few different things. So uh, data analytics, as you said, is a big one. The idea behind a living game is that you're making decisions and improving the game based on what your audience wants. Therefore, you have to know what your audience wants. Uh, and you need more than just obviously, you know, what they say, you want to actually see what they do. So, you know, we look at data from gameplay data, attribution data, sentiment analysis from the community and so on, and use that to inform what the game, how the game should grow, what it should change and, and what should be made for it. Obviously, alongside that is community management, which is, is key to everything. So building the community, managing the community, listening to them and engaging with them in the game and you know obviously on social media and outside of it and then in terms of actually what you do within the game so we break it down into four things events so an event could be uh you know it's halloween so we're going to have a week of halloween themed activities it could be um a daily competition uh, a personal mission a new narrative element anything like that promotions secondly so Mm -hmm. bundles offers free stuff vip offers and so on so those are the things that kind of run day to day by the live ops team and then we have content and features, which are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, you know, content assets released in the game, hopefully uh, by the back end as much as possible, and then features that obviously expand the game. And the idea is to have a regular cadence of activity that keeps players wanting to come back um, and, and obviously giving them ongoing things to do to keep them playing for as, as long as possible, basically. That's amazing. And, and again, Coming from a development background, a little bit like yourself, although never as a programmer. Um, I, I suck as a programmer. I was way better as a writer because lying came very naturally, which is why I ended up doing PR for so many years. But um, for a lot of developers, the, the idea is still you, they're responsible for the creation. And then they mm-hmm. kind of hand off um, back in ye olden days when it was console and, you know, physical mm-hmm. product. You give it to the, the publisher and they handled the distribution, the marketing, the you know, the, the sales and so on and so forth. When it comes to live ops um, and live games, is that an option for developers these days? Can they just kind of hand it over and say, your problem now, guys? Or is this something where the developer fundamentally has to be at the heart of it? 
They do, but what we try to do, which is different from most publishers, is help them to do that. Because the way we think about it is that, you know, publishers traditionally focus on acquiring users. So whether that's traditional influencer marketing for a console game, PR, for example, or whether it's you know, user acquisition on mobile games, those things are all about getting users into your game, which is obviously really important. But what a lot of publishers don't do is focus on helping to retain those users. Um, mm-hmm. That's often, like you said, in a product that wasn't always, it wasn't a key focus anyway, but you know, particularly with service games, that's still often left to the developer. And what we saw through our consulting and through working with a lot of developers is that actually the developers do want to retain control. They do know their game. They are the best people to have that creative vision, but they don't necessarily have the experience to optimize the monetization, design the retention, assess the data, um, and do all of those kind of commercial things that you need to have a service game. But from our point of view, that doesn't mean they have to give up control what we do is we work with them to help them to do those things whilst they keep ip keep creative control but we advise through our obviously our experience but also through the data we gather so essentially it, it's almost live ops as a service <laughs> actually that was our strap line when we started um, was it it was God, you see you need you needed a genius marketing <laughs> oh, guy i know it was but actually uh so when we started the company we pure we we purely did live ops and we didn't do publishing. The bulk of our experience was on retaining users. Let's do that and work with developers. But what we realized over the last couple of years is that understandably developers want one party to work with who can do it all. So that's why in the last uh, six to nine months we expanded, we raised a bit more money and we have now expanded to also do publishing and user acquisition. No, that that's understood. And congratulations. Uh, you know, we carried the, the news piece about your recent funding round, um, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. What are your plans? Um, I mean, obviously, you're expanding into publishing. Live ops is still at the heart of it. But monetization, user acquisition, I mean, these are incredibly hot topics right now. We seem to be getting more and more uh, companies out there who are increasingly specialized when it comes to UA, uh, when it comes to mm-hmm. lifetime value, when it, you know, it, almost an infinite number of of ways of helping content creators get out there. So is it a broader approach? Is it a broader scale? I think the thing that we, uh, the the approach we've taken, which is perhaps, you know, probably different uh, to most, is that we get involved early, um, by which we mean we, you know, we don't wait until they've got data and shown success, um, Mm -hmm. but we also don't kind of take over the game early on. We, We get involved early, we help them with all of those things, monetization, retention, data capture. And, and we have established what we call a, a UA testing program. And this, I, I think, you know, I, I would say this is probably our kind of secret source. It's probably the biggest value add, in my view, mm-hmm. to developers pre-launch. Because what we do is we we look at the game, we, you know, give recommendations on what to do. And then we fund and run targeted user tests before launch, before the game, the game has any data, to help gather that data and, to, and then we assess that and work with the developer to ensure that they're focusing on the right things and that the game is on target. So we don't wait until the game's already making money. We don't wait until it's already shown success. We get involved early enough to really make a difference and, and take it through that program, like I said, which we fund to really kind of make sure that the game is not only ready for launch, but has the evidence to then justify the ongoing and increasing spend in user acquisition or marketing, and the, um, frankly, the ongoing commitment from the developer to the game as well. Of course, and, and again, 
based on my own kind of background in development, and this was years ago, so way you know prior to to games as a service, live games mm. of almost any kind. What's the response been like? Because is this an area where you're finding developers willing to kind of jump in, interested in trying this? Because it's not, it can't be a small commitment, you know. It's not as though you're committing time and resources for a few months and then that's it, you know, two in the water type thing. This is this is a long term project, isn't it? It is. And, you know, as with the developer putting a lot of time and risk into it, you know, we are as well, like any publisher, uh, you know, our success is based on the success of the game. So we have to find the games that we believe, you know, have a good chance of success. And I think we've seen some really interesting games and you know we've signed some great games that are really excited to see come out over the next we probably you know the next year or so we find it really exciting where we, we see a game that we know has potential but where we can see that the things that we can bring to the table will really make a difference and for us that's the kind of sweet spot where the core mechanic is amazing but the developer knows that they need help on monetization or data or retention or these things and so the partnership of their skills and ours that's that's where the kind of sweet spot is really that's where it's um it's a really really fruitful partnership i guess my question has to be is this something that has to be designed in from the outset you know can live ops kind of be be bolted on can you find a game that kind of already exists whether it's an mvp or whether it's in the very early stages of development and say that would be perfect and here's what you need to do or is this something that kind of has to be you know at the core of everything i mean we have seen you know, over the last five years or so, particularly, you know, some games that have been premium, you know, product based turn into services, but it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very costly, and it's very risky. If you're at a stage where you've got your core mechanic, you potentially can still change it, you know, you can make that decision. I think, from our point of view, uh, we often see games where we assess games at a point where they've got the core mechanic, but they haven't necessarily implemented a lot of the kind of live things. So they haven't maybe Mm -hmm. uh, implemented uh, economy or you know the context loop the purpose and progression so they're often got those plans but not done yet um so at that point you've kind of got the option to do it i think really it depends on the team it's a very different process it's a very different um way of making a game and then you have a long-term commitment to it so i think it is possible particularly at those earlier stages um but it has to really be driven by the team knowing that that's what they want to do does live ops fit sort of any genre any type of game is this something where you can you can more or less take any kind of game and and turn it into a service or i mean i would say not all games can be services i would say that you know most of them arguably are now to some extent or the other Mm -hmm. a service um but there will always be games that aren't i mean particularly you know narrative self-contained experiences you know indie games that are you know a a one hour play time you know if, if there's just a beginning middle end Mm-hmm. then, you know, it, it's never going to be a service. But I think, you know, as I said, a lot of games can be services and arguably in today's climate should be if they really want to sort of maximise the revenue. And and when it comes down to sort of the life cycle, back when it was a physical product, you know, you, you had a shelf life, a literal shelf life of weeks, maybe months if you were lucky. Obviously, with digital storefronts, a lot of the new platforms, app stores, etc., you can now achieve something of a long tail. With games that include live services that, that have this kind of live component, what does that do to the life cycle? Are we talking months? Is it can you achieve an immediate success or does it take time to kind of bed in and build an audience? The way we look at it is that, you know, it, it will grow over time. Um, so, you know, when we launch a game, 
the launch is simply part of the process. It's not mm -hmm. an end point. I mean, arguably, it's almost a starting point, if anything. It's a starting point to scale. And um, so scaling the game for as long as possible uh, is, is essentially the goal. And, you know, there will you know, there will be a tipping point when you go from growing your user numbers to sustaining your user numbers. That can be quite a difficult uh, thing to identify, you know, the point where your ongoing spend into acquisition becomes more expensive. Uh, you mm -hmm. have to kind of make that decision. But, you know, we've got, I mean, you know, look at EVE Online and, and RuneScape, how long these games have been around, you know, the sort of dream of having an evergreen game. I guess that's where, you know, most people making a live game would want to be. Whether all games can be evergreen, that's a question. But certainly that, that's, that's the goal. I guess one of my favourite examples, mostly because I, I had a, a tiny bit of involvement on the PR front years and years and years ago, was um, Subway Surfers when mm. it first came out. And, you know, the fact that we're now, what is it, you know, 10 years down the line and it's still up there, you know, it's still being updated on a regular basis and still attracting, you know, not just regular players, but new players just really to me sort of screams that this is something that far more companies out there should be looking at because if you can achieve that kind of longevity and success on an ongoing basis you know you can have whole generations of players enjoying your title rather than just ah remember back in 1997 when i worked on grand theft auto 1 and blah 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 you know yeah you're not going to be able to say that in the in the near future and I think, you know, um, I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, free to play and games as a service, you know, uh, as John's said, you know, the perception of mobile in particular, you know, can be quite different and sometimes, you know, not, not treated in the same way as, you know, PC and console. But I think, you know, the thing for the reason I love this stuff is that you could look at it from a cold numbers point of view, if you want, and just say, you know, okay, it's about maximizing revenue per user, but actually running a game as a service basically means that you're focus is on player experience so it trans it goes from the game designer making a game that they believe is great to mm -hmm. a game designer having a hypothesis that they then validate with the audience and the team spends their entire life trying to make the game better for their players based on what mm -hmm. their players want and i think personally i think that's amazing i would have to agree because it, it, it's something that is if not unique to games then certainly far more common in games than it is in any other sector you know you you don't tend to find it in screen you know film or television mm. where it's like actually not really quite happy with that so we'll re-record re it well not unless you're george lucas yeah and i think you know if yes okay you could put a free-to-play game out there and you could just focus on getting as much money in as quickly as possible but the result of that will be that your players do not feel they got value and they will leave. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you really want to create an evergreen experience, then you've got to create something where when your players spend money, they feel like they're getting value for that money and they're never forced to do it and they're doing it because they want to. Um, and I think that's a really powerful and positive thing. John, do you have anything that you would like to add? I think it's kind of interesting that um, probably about five or six years ago when, we, when people started, I guess people were already using the term sort of games as a service because software as a service was sort of around, wasn't it, as, as, as a kind of corporate thing. Uh, but mm. I remember that sort of being a bit of a eye-opening sort of thing that people were thinking about that. We think about free-to-play, at least in the West, you know, I'm kind of thinking, you know, when I started playing Clash of Clans 2012 and, and I guess back then... They would be very surprised if you said your game is going to be still going in ten years' time. Obviously, very happy, but um, but uh, you know, I, I don't think I think don't think those original games and even Subway Surfers. Um, I don't think they originally quite realised quite what they were sort of getting into at that point. 
Because mm. it's a combination of the, you know, this model where you're basically giving away everything for free and most people aren't aren't paying very much. Some people are paying a lot. A lot of the criticism early on was, you know, these are just kind of Skinner boxes and you're just people extracting money from it. And, and actually it wasn't because, as you say, some people have been playing, I'm sure some people have been playing Clash of Clans for, for 10 years now. I got to mm-hmm. about a year and then stopped. You know, it just becomes sort of part of their lifestyle. And, and generally they're not paying a lot of money. Sometimes they do. But they, you know, it becomes sort of a, a comforting entertainment. If they've got a guild, obviously that kind of plays into human relationships. And, and, and this stuff that, that seemed very weird uh, not that long ago is now, you know, quite normal. I think one interesting thing, I'd be interested to get Ellen's view on this, is, is I think over time, as, as, as game developers become better at working out how to start a game off and then, and then thinking what might we be doing in a year's time, two years' time, ten years' time, even with, with lockdowns and stuff, we only have so much time, at least out, you know, hours um, particularly, and money as well, but we only have so much we can spend. And I guess what's interesting over time is, certainly on the console side, I used to go, you know, a big game comes out, I'm going to zoom through it in like two weeks, and then, so where's the next one sort of thing? You know? And there may be a bit of DLC coming along later, and you, you might, might get into that. But now, you know, people are sort of, I think, playing fewer titles, obviously for much longer. So you do sort of have this interesting thing that in order to compete, you do have to actually have experiences that are keeping people engaged for multiple years because otherwise they'll just go, I'll, I'll go and kind of check something out. And then you can, it's very hard to get anyone back again. I mean, I occasionally have tried to get back into Clash of Clans after not, you know, after not playing it for a long period of time. You're just like, so much has changed. You can't get back into it. You're kind of, you know, you're not very high powered anymore because you haven't played it. And, and so it is kind of interesting from that competitive point of view. But see, I find this absolutely fascinating about the whole market. We're no longer short of content. You know, it's not the case that you saved up for months to go and buy the next big release and you played it exhaustively beginning to end. We have a deluge, a tsunami of content of all kinds. Microsoft no longer considers itself in competition with um, Sony, but with Netflix and Amazon Prime and, you know, all the other big sort of entertainment providers of whatever type. Um and I think that's increasingly true. And it's something that, that developers need to be far more aware of. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about this topic. Um, <laughs> but um, I do a lot of mentoring uh, with uh, sort of startup teams in th- that are making service games and other games. And one of the things that I always focus on, and it, it's surprising how many times this sort of stumps people, is you, know, you ask the question, why should this game exist now? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the reason that this game should exist in the market? Like, why do your audience want this game? And it, it's a really hard question to answer, but th- that's really what it comes down to. Because you said there's just so much content and it's so hard to stand out. It's so hard to get discovered. I mean, there are things you could do uh, through testing as early as possible and so on to, to identify early whether your game does stand out. But in the first place, you know, there needs to be a reason for this game to exist. There needs to be a reason for somebody to go from your game from another game to your game. I mean, on top of that, you know, one of the challenges now for developers of live games is actually how do they avoid cannibalization between their own games? Of course. Because if, you know, if they've got living games going and then they've got, you know, a new game coming out, then there's that balance as well. But I think in games, we've not always been great at answering that. Um, sure. And often we make games because we're passionate about them, which we, we should. But we also, I think, more and more have to be really careful about, you know, does this game actually have a place in the market? And if it does, if we think it does, then we need to just we need to test it as early as possible. And we do testing on games before there's actually even a playable, just to test whether the and I know a lot of other companies do this as well now, just to test whether the the theme and the idea of the game even resonates in the market. You don't actually need a playable to do that. Yeah, you know, we've been covering the hyper casual games market kind of in, increasingly over the last 
um, few weeks and months. And it seems to be an area where it's it's driven by consumer demand. You know, it follows TikTok trends. It follows, you know, really simple kind of trending ideas. And, you know, they may only have a, a shelf life of, you know, a few weeks, 30, mm. 60, 90 days. So you have to be absolutely ruthless, albeit that they're very small, kind of very rapidly prototyped titles. Mm. But you absolutely have to be certain that there are people out there who will play this, uh, that, that you can make money out of it. Because otherwise, yeah. what's what's the point? We've um, we've spent a lot of time looking at hyper-casual games in terms of what games as a service can learn from them. We actually did mm -hmm. a, I think my business partner also has done a, actually a webinar and some articles about this. But we think that, you know, whilst there's a, huge, a lot of differences, as you said, particularly with how hyper-casual games monetize uh, from games as a service in general, there's a huge amount to be learned in terms of how they identify the potential for market and how they get to market as quickly as possible mm -hmm. and how they fail as quickly as possible. Do you have to have a plan for ongoing content release events, etc., way before the game hits the market? So, I mean, firstly, I think, you know, there is a line where it, a game goes from being a service game to just a product with an occasional update. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there is a difference and that's they're both valid. Um, but, you know, a game that has a DLC update every six months probably isn't actually a service. And in which case you probably don't fall into the, the need to have this kind of ongoing plan in the same way. Um, but if you do fall into the games as a service, um, but I would say you do need to have uh, a strategy. You know, we tend to sort of recommend uh, three months in advance uh, is, is kind of where you should be working at least. Um, the key things really are predictability. Your players need to know what is going to happen and you need to do what you say is going to happen. And actually that is more important, I would argue, than how often those things happen. When you release things, they don't have to be big. They can be very small. And, you know, usually you'd have, you know, if you're doing daily things, something tiny daily, a bit bigger weekly, a bit bigger monthly, and then maybe something of larger feature coming out quarterly. And the biggest issues we see are where the audience either doesn't have understanding of what to expect or they do and it isn't met. Yeah. Put the player first, keep it consistent and persistence yeah. wins. And, and, you know, try not to overpromise, I guess. You know, if you are concerned mm -hmm. about, you know, what you can do, it's better, I would say, promise less and keep to it than to promise more and not keep to it. If people want to get in touch, if they're looking for more information, where do they go? Where do they track you down? Go to our website, fundamentally.games. We have all of our information on there, including our heads of terms, because we like to be completely transparent about how we work. Uh, there's also a submission form on there and uh, loads of free content, webinars and so on, where we talk about all this stuff in more detail. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Ella. Thank you very much for having me. So thank you again to Ella for that uh, incredible interview. Some really valuable insight, I think, into the into the world of live ops and live games publishing, John. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think it, I think it's one of those things that unless you've kind of been working in the mobile space and then sort of you know been on a team that's that's done that, I think certainly as journalists we, we sort of have a, have an idea about what it might be, but to actually see how it has changed sort of mobile game development would probably be <laughs> quite eye opening. That as I think uh, Ella said, this you know when you when you launch the game, that's really the start. <laughs> so not that long ago, that was that was literally the end. That was that was you know we can we can oh, yeah. we can remember when when after the literally after the game went live, everyone was on holiday for two months. <laughs> exactly, I mean, it goes now. to gold. Yeah, it goes to gold master, and everyone in the studio can take two weeks off 
one of the interesting things for me is the fact that this is a new and emerging skill set, but it's something that I don't think we're teaching yet. You know, I, I think an awful lot of the companies out there have learned on the job. They've been picking it up as they, as they go, because this, as far as I'm aware, this isn't something that we're teaching in any of the universities or the games related courses out there. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> maybe a, maybe an opportunity for the, uh, the people who don't necessarily want to be programmers to get into the game sector and uh, have a, a hand in the future. Well, I absolutely think so. Cause it is, um, you know, as, as games have gone on, then you get more and more specialized roles. So there will always be kind of roles for great artists and, and, and coders, but for something like a, a live ops team, obviously you need coders and, and artists and content creators in there. But generally you, you might think about things like, you know, what's going on around the world? When are their holidays? How are you going to kind of build that stuff into where is key kind of audiences? But then equally, you know, I guess we're probably moving, moving more towards people looking at things like what's, what's happening on TikTok? How can we build that into next week's kind of content? And, and you know, that's, that sort of stuff is very powerful in terms of the marketing you can do, but also sort of very sort of soft skills. It's not, you know, you don't put in a CV and go I'm good at social media I mean maybe people do these days but but um yeah that, that kind of stuff is is quite difficult to sort of pin down but I think that there are definitely roles for for everyone and for, you can see for universe I mean universities have enough problems teaching games anyway because games is like changing all the time well you know it's still emerging it's still kind of evolving I think there's that it's going to be an interesting few years you know new skills new opportunities new challenges everywhere you look it's a fascinating place to be anyway That brings us to the end of uh, podcast number two. Thank you very much for your time and attention this week, folks. Uh, It only remains for me to remind you of a few big events that we have coming up. Pocket Gamer Connects Digital 7 is happening next week. That's the 12th to the 16th of July. 250 plus speakers from the industry. We've got King, we've got Rovio, 30 conference tracks, all sorts of things happening there. Uh, as part of that, we have the big indie pitch. So developers, uh, get your games in there and you can actually promote them and showcase and highlight them to an entire audience of potential players, investors, publishers and the like. Uh, those are uh, July the 13th for console and PC and July the 14th for mobile. And last but not least, we have the Mobile Game Awards taking place on Tuesday the 20th of July. Uh, from 7 till 11.30pm and that Steel Media's celebration of the great, the good and the glorious of the global mobile games market and uh, tickets are still available so get in there if you can go to uh, mobilegameawards.com then we'll be able to sort you out so that's us, thank you very much again Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have any feedback for us, if you have suggestions for guests, topics that you would like to hear covered email us, podcast at pockergamer.biz or you can find us on Twitter using the at PGBiz handle. Uh, we'll see you for the next one. And as always, we will be providing you with show notes, links to ourselves, the stories that we covered, and of course, Ella and the Fundamentally Games team on pocketgamer.biz. So until next time, thank you again. Have a fabulous week and uh, we'll speak to you again sometime soon. Hey.